Well, this morning's title for this, this morning's message is Jesus, Are You For Real? I'd be grateful, please, if you turn with me to John chapter 18. If you haven't got a Bible, don't worry about it. You're good to go because I'm going to read it anyway. But if you have got a Bible, then please turn to John chapter 18. We're going to catch up with the story in the Gospels where Jesus um, is really being interrogated. The Pharisees have decided without question that they really hate Jesus. They want Jesus killed. And yet they can't actually kill Jesus themselves if they wanted to be crucified. So they need to go to the government for that, the Roman government. And so they've just rocked up at, at Pilate's because they're hoping that Pilate will kill Jesus and crucify him on their behalf. But Pilate just doesn't get it. He doesn't get why doesn't get really what the problem is. And this is what he says, verse 33. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord, or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from this world. Then Pilate said to him, So you are a king? Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, What is truth? What is truth? That's the question that we're really going to be looking at this morning, and that's the question that we're really here to discover. What is the truth about Jesus himself? What is the truth in terms of Jesus Christ's existence? Did he really exist? And what is the truth about who he claimed to be, i.e. God. Did he really walk the earth 2,000 years ago? Did he really perform these crazy miracles? And did he really claim to be God, coming after people to seek and save the lost? If he didn't, then we could all have a burger and go home because there's other things we do at that time. But if he did, then that's full on. So let's pray and then we'll get into God's word together. Well, Lord, what a thrill to be able to gather around your word with friends, with family, with visitors, and to genuinely look into the word to work out, did your son really exist? Well, Lord, I pray that you, because you do exist, will impress upon people's hearts this morning, everybody in this room, for all those who already believe in you, would they be quickened and encouraged and grow in their courage to share the gospel more? as they realize fully the confidence they can have in your existence. And Lord, for those that don't know you, would they weigh up the evidence and make their choice? And Lord, would grace abound to them as they do? In Jesus' name, amen. So Jesus, is Jesus really for real? Well, to really answer that question, the first thing we have to do is really examine, did he really exist? Did he really walk around 2,000 years ago like me and you, rocking up, doing different things with friends and so on and so forth? And it's a really good question because if he didn't, then we're kind of done. But if he did, then at least we've got a guy walking around. And the truth is the evidence for Jesus existing is massive. It's evidence that is both inside the Bible 
and also evidence that is well outside the Bible in history so that we can prove that Jesus exists. First of all, the evidence in the Bible is very strong. Now, I know what you're thinking, particularly if you're not a Christian and you're not sure about Christianity. You're thinking right now, how can I, having been serenaded by Chris this morning, have a confidence in the Bible? How can I argue from the Bible to give an account for this? Because if you're not a Christian, you may well be looking on the Bible and thinking, that's cheating. Because how do we know the Bible's any good? The Bible could be rubbish. And so before we even do anything, if we're going to argue from the Bible, we have to work out how do we know it's even reliable? You see, in the UK, we have this game called Chinese Whispers. And I checked with Brendan. Apparently, you also have this game, Chinese Whispers. And so you remember when you sit around at parties and you you whisper in somebody's ear. And then it gets around about 10 people. And by the end, it's a completely different story. You played that game? Well, how does it work then over 2,000 years with the Bible? Surely, at least I was convinced as a young man, surely the Bible is just full of errors, full of changes And therefore, we can't rely on it in any shape or form. And yet, I think that is a common misconception. Because the Bible is incredibly reliable. F.J. Hort says it this way. F.J. Hort is one of the greatest textual critics who ever lived. Textual criticism, i.e. the the textual study of, of ancient pieces of literature, in a nutshell. He says this. In the variety and fullness of the evidence of which it rests... The text of the New Testament stands absolutely and unapproachably alone among ancient prose writings. See, this guy is absolutely convinced that the Bible is straight up, that we can have confidence in it as a piece of historical literature. And there's really three reasons that he talks about it being that the case. First of all is the sheer amount of manuscripts we have. And so Tacitus, a Roman historian, there's only 20 of his original stuff. And yet people say, oh, without doubt, that must be true. Caesar's Gaelic War, there's only nine of them, but people rely on that. Livy's Roman history, there's only 20 of them, but people say, oh, well, that's, that's got to be fact. Well, the Bible, there's 5,000 Greek manuscripts, 10,000 Latin manuscripts, and 9,500 other manuscripts. So one of the reasons why we know then that it all says the same is just because the sheer amount of data that we have out there that is all saying the same. Secondarily is the way they were copied. These original manuscripts were copied down. You see... They were done by monks. If you've ever wondered, what do monks do for a living? Well, 2,000 years ago, monks copied out the Bible. That's what they did. And the whole premise of the way they copied is they were basically trying to be human photocopiers. What helped them was they believed that if a jot or tittle was out of place, which is the two smallest parts of a Hebrew text, that God would strike them down with lightning and they would die. So they really tried to make sure it was accurate. So the way they copied things was to ensure that, you know what, straight up, we've got to be sure that this is definitely what was there. And if, if a jot or tittle was out of place, they would tear up the manuscripts and, and start again. That would be a disappointing three weeks, eh, if you find that at the end. Also, the way the Bible holds together internally, the way it actually storylines from Genesis to Revelation, and in the genre and the text, the, the way it's, it's, it's written together with different themes that wouldn't have been known about previously or post It all begins to make sense. And so the Bible, according to F.J. Hort, one of the greatest textual critics that lived, is without question unapproachably alone among ancient prose writings. And the Bible says a lot about Jesus. The Bible talks about him everywhere, all the way through the Gospels and then all the way through the New Testament, looking back to Jesus. Nobody's sticking their hand up saying, hang on, he never existed. They're all saying, yeah, yeah, we know him. Yeah, we, we met him. We walked around with him. And so part of the evidence for Jesus actually existing just comes from the Bible, the Word of God. But there's also evidence outside the Bible. 
And so if you're not a Christian and you're still not convinced about the Bible, okay, we'll run with that for a moment. But I want you to run with this. Tacitus and Suetonius mention Jesus Christ often. They're Roman historians. They didn't go on to become Christians, but they in their historical works talk about Jesus. They talk about this guy who walked around the earth claiming to be God. He did things that they can't understand, and it's written down in historical data. Then there's Josephus. He was born A.D. 37, and he researched a lot about Jesus Christ, and he wrote a lot about him. He says this. He says, now there was about this time Jesus, a wise man, if it be lawful to call him a man, for he was a doer of wonderful works and a teacher of such men as received the truth with pleasure. He drew over to him both many of the Jews and many of the Gentiles. He then goes on to speak of the crucifixion and alleged resurrection. And then he says this, And the tribe of Christians so named after him are not extinct to this day. That was AD 37. Well, uh, Mr. Josephus, they're still not extinct to this day. But these are... These are these are historians. These are not Christians that are just having a backhander off a group of disciples saying, hey, could you write something for us? These are respected Roman and Jewish historians that talk about Jesus. They talk about this guy who walked around doing things they couldn't understand, claiming to be God, and allegedly, well, they knew he died, but allegedly he rose again, and they say that. So there is evidence in the Bible for Jesus, and there is massive evidence outside of the Bible. Really, realistically, there is no scholar-historian that is actually going to look anybody in the eye and say, no, Jesus didn't exist. Because the evidence is massive that Jesus existed. The question then, though, for us is, well, who was he then? So he definitely existed. But who was he? See, some people, as we examine really the reality of Jesus' claims, some people would just say, well, you know what, he's a great moral teacher, or a great leader, or he's a prophet. One comedian in Britain says, I can't believe in Christianity, but I think Jesus was a wonderful man. And he puts a full stop at the end of that. And so you get so many different various views in the world where some people say, well, he's a good guy. Some people say he's a good leader. Some people say he's a prophet. Some people say, well, you know, he's, he's all right. Seems like a nice bloke. Maybe we should try and find out about him. Lots of people have so many different ideas about who Jesus is. And yet, in all reality, Jesus claimed to be far more than that. Jesus never, ever claimed to be a prophet, never claimed to be a good moral teacher, never claimed to be a great leader. He never claimed to be any of those things. Jesus claimed to be God. He says to have seen him was to have seen God, John 14, verse 9. He says to receive him was to receive God, Matthew 10, verse 40. And he says to have welcomed him was to have welcomed God. Mark 9, verse 37. Jesus didn't claim to be a good guy. He claimed to be God. He claimed to be God, one who existed before the earth was even created, one who took on flesh and came to earth. As he spoke with his mouth in history and in the Bible, he claims to be God. All we've then got to work out as people is, do we believe his claims or not? Not does he exist. We know he existed. But do we actually believe what he said? Or do we simply reject it? And there are people all over the Bible that do both. Some that reject. Some that definitely take it on, truly believing that he is who he says he is. He is God. Now, what I want us to do for the remainder of our time then is really examine evidence so that you can make your verdict. 
See, the Bible really is evidence that demands a verdict. There's evidence in there that then you have to decide either I'm in or you must be crazy and I'm going to give it a miss. But there's certainly evidence all over the Bible that we have to examine and we have to understand so that we can make our choice. Now, for the record, just so that you don't get too concerned about me, just because somebody claims to be someone doesn't make them that someone, right? Fair point? So I watched a documentary a few months ago about this guy in Queensland who believes he's Jesus, full-on believes he's Jesus, and he's got people gathered around him that are all living in tents, and they're calling him Jesus, which is kind of cozy, and doing things that try and help him because he, he's Jesus. And, and he married Mary Magdalene, somebody who he said was Mary Magdalene. And, what, and the interviewer said, so have there been any other girlfriends before that you've said were Mary Magdalene? And he said, oh, yes. And he, oh, that, that's very interesting. So you're not quite clear who Mary Magdalene is. It was very perplexing. But this guy clearly really believes he's Jesus. But he's not. He's an Aussie crackpot. He's absolutely off his head in Queensland. I have no idea where he is. There's a show in Britain called Trisha. I hope it never arrived in Australia because it's... It did? Oh. Did it? Oh, really? Yeah. I'm play school. Oh, well, she's upgraded. Now, in Britain, she's not in play school. She has her own show. And she interviews really strange people. And it's a horrible show. So horrible, I really liked it. And so I'd watch this show... And I remember one, one, one particular show, which I just so loved. She was basically interviewing people that really believed there was somebody else. So they had Henry VIII on there. This guy dressed as Henry VIII, absolutely convinced that he is Henry VIII. They had Elvis on there, which was nice. They had Marilyn Monroe on there, which was good. And all these people genuinely thought, without question, I am these people. And you just think, Marilyn Monroe does not weigh 150 pounds and is built like a shed. You are. You know, it was just so clear that they are not the person they think they are. But without doubt, they really absolutely were convinced that they're these people. So... Just because Jesus claims to be God does not make him God, right? It just makes him a guy claiming to be it. And that's when you have to decide then who do you believe he is. C.S. Lewis says this, a helpful indicator for us. He says, A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on a level with the man who says he's a poached egg Or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else he's a madman or something worse. But let us not come up with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us, and he did not intend to. I think he's right. And wherever you land on Jesus, you have to really bottom out that you either say he's a liar, you say he's a lunatic, Or he is the Lord. He's either a guy that knows he's not God, but he's pretending to be, in which case he's a liar. Or he's a guy that's not God, but really thinks he is. Head gone. Lunatic. Or he really is God. And you're going to come back to me and say, no, I don't think he's any of those things. I think he's a great moral teacher. Yeah, but he's either a great moral teacher who's a liar, a great moral teacher who's a lunatic, or a great moral teacher who's a Lord. Okay, well, I won't go with that then. Um, I think he's a great leader. Well, do you want to follow a great leader who's a liar or a lunatic? Or do you want to consider that he may be the Lord? And you begin to understand the bottom out. He has to be one of those things. Because of his claims, he's either a liar, a lunatic, or he really is the Lord that he claims to be. And so 
Let's have a look at the evidence. And let's see, there's five things that I want to bring up. And I want you to consider them for yourself. As you consider, who do you think Jesus is? Number one then, his works. In his lifetime, Jesus performed literally hundreds of miracles. And every time he did them, he claimed, as he does in John 10, that I'm doing it because the Father is in me and I in the Father. He wanted to show people that I am God. If you were God and you came to the earth today, I put to you, you'd probably do the same thing. You'd want to show people, okay, well, I'm going to do things that you can't to show you that I'm God. Well, that's what, exactly what he did. And so wherever he used to go, he didn't just used to share about himself and his work and what he was doing. He would operate in the supernatural so that he could show them, well, you have a go at doing that. Let's see how you get on. He's showing them that he's God. And so there's the wedding at Cana, his first miracle. He turns 180 gallons of water into wine. I love that. That is my God. You know what I'm saying? That is just so good. I mean, there is so much Christianity that revolves around the idea of Jesus being this boring guy that would probably be more likely to turn wine into water. You know, that's the way it kind of works. But that's not what the Bible says. Jesus rocks up and turns 180 gallons of water into wine so that they could proceed with the wedding and so that people could truly enjoy the wedding for what was left of it. He meets a guy then at the pool of Bethesda. This dude's been an invalid for 38 years. He cries out to Jesus and Jesus points to him and says, get up, take your bed and walk. He then meets a man who's blind, a guy that's been born blind, a beggar. He calls out to him and Jesus goes to him in compassion, spits on the ground, kind of strange, but creates this little mud pack, sticks it over his eyes and says, you go wash that out in that pool. The guy does that and he can see. We then have this incident where there's 5,000 people rocking up to hear Jesus. I mean, that's pretty cool. That would be like Hornsby Christmas Spectacular last night. Everybody is rocked up. They've been there all day, and they're really hungry, and, oh dear, nobody's brought the McDonald's. You know, that's what it was like as they examined what was going on in this day. All they've got is five loaves and two fresh. Well, that ain't going to go very far. So Jesus prays over it, multiplies it, It says that everybody ate to their fill and by the end there were 12 baskets left over. On one occasion he's walking into Cain. He's just about to enter in and there's a funeral procession walking out. It's a widower's son. And Jesus has compassion on this child and on his mum. So he goes to the child and raises the child, gives him back to his mum. That's a miracle. He does it to his friend then, Lazarus. Lazarus had been dead four days. He's probably this stinking mummified mess. But Jesus fell for him and fell for the family. So he walks in the tomb. He says, Lazarus, come forth. Lazarus comes forth. Well, here's the thing that we have to bottom out. All those different things written for us in historical data, i.e. the Bible. Are they the works of a liar? Are they the works of a lunatic? Or are they the works of the Lord? Are they the works of a man who claimed to be God, who really was God? Second piece of evidence is his fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. In Genesis 3.15, we see Jesus addressing Satan. And he's talking to Satan, and really he makes a prophetic statement about what is to come. Because he assures Satan that one day one will come. And although you will bruise his heel, he will crush your head. I like that. That's like fighting talk. That is so cool. 
And for the remainder then of the Old Testament, as time goes on, there is one prophecy after another, all describing what this one is going to be, what this serpent crusher is going to be like. Who is he going to be? Where is he going to be born? How is he going to die? What's going to, what is he going to do in his life? Which family line is he going to come from? All throughout the Old Testament, over hundreds of years, there are hundreds of prophecies. Well, Jesus fulfills every last one of them. All of them. Wilbur Smith, who's an American theologian, he says this, listen. The ancient world had many different devices for determining the future, known as divination. But not in the entire range of Greek and Latin literature, even though they used the words prophet and prophecy, can we find any real specific prophecy of a great historic event to come in the distant future, nor any prophecy of a saviour to arrive in the human race? Mohammedanism cannot point to any prophecies of the coming of Mohammed, uttered hundreds of years before his birth. Neither can the founders of any cult in this country rightly identify any ancient text specifically foretelling their appearance. Yet Jesus fulfilled over 300 prophecies spoken by different voices over 500 years. 29 prophecies were fulfilled in a single day on the day that he died. Jesus could have been a clever con man who deliberately set out to fulfill these prophecies in order to show that he was the Messiah foretold in the Old Testament. But the sheer number of them would have made it difficult. He would have had no control over many of the events. For example, the exact manner of his death was foretold in the Old Testament, Isaiah 53, and burial in even the place of his birth, Micah 5 verse 2. And one's birth and death, with all due respect, are difficult things to organize kind of got a point there. So 300 prophecies over 500 years, 29 specifically relating into the death of Jesus Christ, a historical known figure, an historical known figure that was claiming to be God. He fulfills all of them. Every last one he ticks off. In John chapter 19, we read about how the guards around him have split up his garments. And then there's one final piece, his loincloth. That would be a piece of clothing that your mum would give you when you come of age. And now the guards are casting lots for it. Well, that's what actually happened. Turn with me then to Psalm 22. Just go back in your Bible. This was written hundreds of years before Jesus ever rocked up on the scene. Psalm 22, verse 18, says this. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. This whole psalm, if you read it, is a prophetic psalm. It's talking about what is going to happen in the future. How remarkable then that as Jesus hung upon the cross, they divide his garments and they cast lots for his final piece of clothing. How does he do that? Does he do it because he's a liar? Does he do it because he's a lunatic? Or does he do it because he really is God? He really is the one that always claimed to be. And so unfolding in his life all around him is all the prophecies that always pointed to him being answered. Well, that's what we have to ask ourselves. 
His fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy, is that a lie? Is that a lunatic? Is that really the Lord? Third piece of evidence is his character. Gandhi, a little Indian guy, once said this, I don't like you Christians, but I do like your Christ. I love that. He didn't become a Christian, hated Christians in so many ways, but I do like your Christ. I like him. And why was that? Why did he so like Christ? He liked Christ because of his character. He saw the man, Jesus, before him and was affected by that. He, he was weighing up who Jesus said he was and as he examined his life, he was impressed by that and he loved that about Christ. So I ain't going to become a Christian, but I do like your Christ. Jesus was full of character. You know, I remember when I was a kid, an older guy in the church coming alongside me and saying, you know what, a real test of character is not really how you act in situations. It's how you react to situations. And that's how you really tell what character is. It's not how you act all the time. It's how you react. How do you react when your kid's really sick? How do you react when life around you is falling apart? How do you react when you lose your job? How do you react when your eyes cross with you? That's the test of character. Not primarily how we act, but how we react. Well, put that framework then onto Jesus. Jesus, post this discussion with Pilate, was unjustly declared guilty. He was whipped. He was flogged. A crown of thorns was put on his head. A purple cloak was put around him to mock him. He was then beaten by soldiers as they laughed at him and mocked him, saying, prophesy then, tell us which one it was. He then had to carry his own cross, which he couldn't handle because his body was breaking down, so Simon of Cyrene had to help. He then was hanging on the cross. After this whole event had unfolded, And this is what he says. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. Are they the words of a liar? Are they the words of a lunatic? Or is that the character of God? Is that the character of the Lord? The one who he always claimed to be? God himself coming after the lost, coming after people so that they could be saved. What are you going to do with that? What are you going to do with his character? Number four, his conquest over death. You know, one of the cornerstones of Christianity is not just that Jesus died, it's the fact that three days later he rose again. Many of the disciples claim to have seen Jesus when he rose again. They all rocked up at the tomb where they died. They find the stone rolled away and he was gone. Now, 2,000 years ago, the world wasn't that much different to ours. And so, obviously, conspiracy theories were everywhere, as they would be today in our society. And many conspiracy theories came about as a result of this. Everybody knew that Jesus wasn't there anymore. No one was saying, oh, he is actually still there, my mistake. No, everybody knew the stone had been rolled away and he'd gone. But there's lots of different versions of where he had gone. The disciples were saying, listen, we have done nothing. This guy has risen again. We've seen him. Lots of people didn't believe that. And so there's various conspiracy theories. Some thought that Jesus had not actually died. Well, that conspiracy theory is really rubbish. See, Roman centurions were professional executioners. That's what they did for a living. That's all they did for a living. I mean, these guys were full-on murderers. 
And so in their culture, what they did was as follows. If I'm a Roman centurion and I'm having to crucify somebody, the rule is simply this. If he's not dead and I let him down, then I get punished with what he had. So if you're a Roman centurion, you ain't letting somebody come down that isn't dead. Because if he ain't dead, they're going to kill me and crucify me. So I'm going to wait and make sure he's dead. And so this idea that Jesus wasn't dead, and so somehow, you know, even though they put the spear in his side and blood and water flowed, which is a biological proof that he was actually dead, even though he had, you know, all these then clearly after his guts hanging out the side and he was clearly dead because they killed him. Oh, he just jumped out the tomb and pulled away a three-ton stone and said, here I am, only joking. That's ridiculous. That's insane. He was definitely dead. Another conspiracy theory is that the disciples stole the body, that they must have actually gone in somehow and got past the guards and, and stolen the Bible, stolen Jesus. And in some ways, I can understand why we could get there And if I was a non-Christian, I think I'd probably play that card. Yeah, the disciples stole him. Bingo. The problem is, it it just doesn't really work. See, the disciples, when Jesus died, were scared stiff. And they were disillusioned. They didn't run towards Jesus. They ran away from Jesus. They fled. They still hadn't really understood what exactly was going on. And so as the guards comfort Jesus, apart from Peter who tries to stab a guy in the head, the other guys run off because they are freaking out about what is going on. So why then would these guys come back to try to steal him, steal the body and then run off if so many of them then went on to die for him? See, that's the issue for me. If I have stolen a body as a disciple of Christ, I am not then signing up to be crucified myself or sawn in half or eaten by lions or put on a stake and then tarred and torched. I'm not going to do that on the premise that, well, I saw him. Why would you do that? But that's what happened to them. As they stood before the Romans, the whole premise was, is you are claiming that Jesus Christ rose again. We thought that we had already dealt with him as a nation, and now you are whipping up this frenzy around us again, and we do not want it in this city. So I need you to deny right now that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. Well, I I can't do that, because I've seen him. Then you will die, which is exactly what happened. You know, in so many of the persecutions straight, straight after Jesus dying... Within 30, 40, 50 years, so many people died at the hands of the Romans. One emperor went and killed so many Jews that they said that they ran out of wood. They were nailing 15 people to a cross. Christians being killed because they said, we believe. We saw him. I can't deny him. He's the king. And we saw him. The other idea is that the authorities stole the body. This is the least probable of all. Post-resurrection, as I said, the disciples whipping up a frenzy, the very thing that they wanted to kill Christ to stop. And so you know what they would have done if the disciples had said, hey, he's risen again. They would have said, you must be joking. Here he is. We stole him. They never did. They never did because they didn't have him. They didn't have him because he rose again. The body wasn't there because Jesus Christ really did rise from the dead three days later, exactly like he always said he would. He went on to appear to the disciples not just once, but 11 times. 
Not just one or two people, but over 550 people. That's a lot of people smoking very strange things all at once, seeing Jesus 11 times. That would be very peculiar. They really did see him. And so many of them went on to die for the faith. Is that then the work and the resurrection power of a liar? Is that the work and resurrection power of a lunatic? Or is that the work and resurrection power of God, the one who you always claim to be? Here's the final piece of evidence then. Quite literally, his followers. See, one of the most compelling pieces of evidence that I believe the New Testament gives to us throughout it is the sheer amount of people that having encountered Jesus then put their faith in him as their Lord and Savior. People who had spent time with him, people who had been on the end of his teaching, people who had seen his miracles, people who had seen his resurrection power, The result was that so many people, hundreds, went on to say, I believe you are my God and you are my Lord. I really believe that you are who you said you are. They believe that Jesus is the Lord and they believe that Jesus is indeed their Savior. See, Jesus always claimed that he had come to seek and save the lost. That was always his claim. He claimed that he had come from heaven and earth to make a way for anybody who had put their faith in him to have life and life in abundance. Not only now, but in eternity, knowing that they've been reconciled to God himself. Well, hundreds of people in the Bible responded that way and then went on to experience that in their lives. And so I think that's an overwhelming piece of evidence that we have to examine. And yet that evidence isn't only in the Bible. The evidence of people's lives being changed in the last 2,000 years is overwhelming. There are millions of people who having encountered Jesus in the word, having encountered Jesus in people, have come away and said, you know what? I believe. I believe that Jesus really is God and I believe that he died in my place. That is an overwhelming piece of evidence. 2,000 years on, millions of people believing their lives have been changed by Jesus Christ. And I'm one of them. I'm one of those guys that would say, you know what, genuinely, Jesus has changed my life. You see, I grew up going to church. And when I was a kid, I didn't like that because I found church really, really boring. And so the highlight of church was when they said, we finished. That was what I really liked about church. But there's some things that I liked about it and that at least as I look back on it, I was grateful for two things. I was grateful that I met really, really kind people, genuine people, that I thought, man, you are, you're different. See, I think sometimes in stereotypical Christianity, people think, oh, Christians are hypocrites, they're they're self-righteous. That's not been my experience in church life. I understand how we get there, but that's not actually been my experience of the churches I've been a part of. I found really genuine people who love Jesus and genuinely love each other and are kind and gracious and hospitable and all the different things that the Bible says that, that we're called to do. And I also learned a lot of Bible stories in Sunday school. And so I liked that, and it, it, it helped me as I got older. The challenge was I got to a certain age when I thought that Christianity was indeed just nice people and Bible stories. And when you hit your teens, that ain't quite rocking enough. Do you know what I mean? It's just not working out. This, is that it? Have I just got like Noah and a kind old lady? Because this isn't working out, because there's some pretty good stuff out there, and this is not quite what I'm into. And so I reached a certain age in my life when I had to bottom out for myself, is this true? Because if it is, it has a claim on my life. Because if it's not true, it looks pretty good out there, and so I'm going to go and do that instead. 
I came to an age when it wasn't enough just to piggyback on my parents' faith. And I need to bottom out for myself. What is this all about? And two things within a very short season really came alive to me. The first was who Jesus claimed to be. It was mind-bottling for me when I eventually heard that Jesus is in historical literature. I'd never heard that growing up. Obviously, I'd just been taught from the Bible in church. And so I wasn't convinced by that because that's just what my mum and dad say. But he's in history. Oh. That, for me, minimally, that caused me to think, I've got to bottom out on who he is. Because he clearly came to be God. There's no doubt in that. But who did I believe he was? That really began a change in my life. We're trying to search after him then to bottom out, who is this one? If he really is God, then that's full on. If he really is the one that spins the galaxies and breathes forth all things and has a claim on my life, and I will one day stand and give an account before him, then I'm looking into who he is. The second thing that really had a claim on my life very quickly was the storyline of the Bible. You see, I honestly thought, I mean, this is embarrassing, but I really thought that the Old Testament was just full of Bible studies like Jonah and Noah. And you're like, oh, isn't this, isn't this nice really affecting my life? Um, or rules. And neither were that appealing at a certain age. You think, you know what, Jonah isn't changing my life. Neither's Noah's Ark. You know, great, love it. I'll teach it to my kids, but I don't quite get how it affects me. And the rules definitely didn't affect me. They bored me silly. No one wants to live under rules, right? Because that just isn't riveting. And so if this is just a rule book and a book of stories, that doesn't have a claim on my life. But when I began to actually read the Bible for myself and study the Bible for myself, I began to find it is not full of stories and it is not full of rules at all. This is one story. And this is a story of the greatest rescue mission ever told. It starts with God making mankind. Not people evolving from amoebas or anything of the sort, but God actually breathing life into man. God making us so that we could find satisfaction and joy and contentment in him. Just like, just like a guy with a watch who's then saying to the watch, okay, I want you to find your delight in me. That's what God's done with us. He created us to worship him. He created us to spend time with him. He created us to walk with him and find our purpose and our identity and joy in him. Challenge is, it didn't last very long. In fact, three chapters. Genesis 3, mankind said, thanks very much. We'll reject you. We'll stick with the creation. Instead of worshipping God, mankind started to worship creation. And all that's happened then is time has gone on and on and on, and we now live in the broken down house the world is today. See, God made us to be with him, and yet mankind, including me and including you, rejected God. We've not bowed the knee when we come out the mother's womb and said, okay, Jesus, I want to worship you as my Lord and Savior, and I want to follow after you in my life. We've done our own thing, right? And sometimes it's been real good. But because of that, we're in sin. We have completely rejected God's ideal for our lives. In doing that, we've rejected God from our lives, and there are massive consequences from that. First and foremost, we are now cut off from God. The very closeness with God that you were made for to find real joy and real contentment and real satisfaction, the very things that the whole world is looking on to find, we cannot find because we've been cut off from God. And the only source of true joy and true satisfaction is in God. But we're cut off from that because God's holy and we've rejected him. The second consequence is that one day we will stand and give an account for our lives. Me as a Christian, you as a non-Christian. It doesn't make any difference. 
and we will stand before God and give an account for our lives. And the Bible is clear, if any one of us is found in sin, then we will be removed from him for all eternity. That is full on. And we find that out pretty quick in the Bible. But then all the way through the Old Testament, we have pointers to one who's going to come. One who is coming after us to save us. One who will die on a cross to make to atone for our sins. One who will make a way for us to know what it is to be forgiven and reconciled to the God who made us. One who will come to make a way for us to spend time with God again, the one who made us. And in the book of John and Mark and Matthew and Luke, that one arrives and his name is Jesus. Jesus Christ straight up comes to the world and he doesn't say, listen, I'm here to be boring. I'm here to judge you. He says, listen, I'm rocking up to seek and save the lost. Satan, he comes to kill and rob and destroy you and he's the ruler of the earth right now. But I've come so that you may have life and life in abundance. So put your faith in me as your Lord and Savior and I will reconcile you to the God who made you and give you the joy that you all are made for and you desire. Jesus Christ then died on the cross, just as we read in the Gospels. He then rose again. And the exhortation of Scripture then is, if you put your faith in me as Lord and Savior, then you indeed will be saved. Well, as a young man, that's what I did. And I found that Jesus in that moment is absolutely true. That this isn't just a storybook that is like a fairy tale. But this is a book written by God about God and about God coming after us on a rescue mission. And responding to that changed my life. Hundreds of followers in the, in the, Old Test, in the New Testament, millions of followers since. Are they following a liar? A dead liar? Are they following a dead lunatic? Just weirdly thinking that he's changed their lives? Or are they following a God who is alive and is now seated at the right hand of the Father saying, come to me, all who are weary, and I'll give you rest? Who are we following? Lord, liar, or lunatic? Let me leave you then with the words of Sherlock Holmes, that famous theologian. He says this, When you've eliminated the impossible, whatever remains, however improbable, must be the truth. When you've eliminated the impossible, whatever remains, however improbable, must be the truth. Folks, I submit to you, this is the truth. Jesus, are you for real? Answer, yes. Yeah. 2,000 years ago, he came to earth seen in both the Bible and in historical context. He claimed to be God and he proved he is God through his character, through his miracles, through his fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy, through his followers. Jesus, are you for real? Absolutely. Yes. And he indeed was God. Listen, if you believe that, if you're responding to me saying, yeah, I believe that. I think Jesus really was God. Well, that's great. Then take the next step. And the next step is this. Romans 10 verse 9 says, For if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, then you will be saved. Jesus Christ came on a rescue mission for you. But he's not going to force you. It's now up to you. You can either make him the Lord of your life and the Savior of your life, in which case you are saved. 
He rescued you. Or you can reject him. Say thanks, but no thanks. Well, that's a rejection. Folks, the decision for that is yours. When you've eliminated the impossible, whatever remains, however improbable, must be the truth. I believe with wholehearted expression that this is the truth. The question for you then is, what do you believe is the truth? Do you believe he's a liar? Do you believe he's a lunatic? Or do you believe he's the Lord? And if you believe he's the Lord, then everything he said counts. And he said that you are in great danger, cut off from God, but he came after you so that if you put your faith in him as Lord and Savior, he will reconcile you to the one who made you. Lord, liar or lunatic, it's your choice. It's your call. And I pray grace abounds to you as you make your decision. Let's pray. Well, Lord, how good it is to be gathered around your word. Lord, I thank you that we don't have to put our faith and believe in something that is built on flaky theology or flaky proof where we're forever wondering, is this really true? But we stand on a solid foundation of something that changes our lives. Lord, you have changed our lives. And so, Lord, I pray for every individual in this room, young and old, Lord, would they genuinely come to know you as Lord and Savior? Would you open the eyes of their hearts to behold you in your glory and your splendor? And would you open up the truth of the gospel to them that you really did come to die on a saving mission for them? Would that truth change their lives like it changed mine? And Lord, as it does, would all glory, all glory go to you. Amen.